Greetings, everyone. This is the Sound Health Radio Show with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And I'll just keep saying this, but in the best of ways, Sherry Edwards is off working on the SoundHealthPortal.com. To learn more about the Sound Health Portal, you can go to SoundHealthPortal.com. I'll say this now. I'll reverse this for a change that you can scroll down further once you come to the landing page at Sound Health Portal and scroll down and look at media at the, toward the bottom of the page and you can click on videos and you can watch a live demo, a recorded live demo of Sherry doing a vocal workup for somebody. And it's a great thing to see at least once because then it gives you an idea of the scale and the scope of the kind of information that it can hear from running, having your voice print, which is merely a recording of your voice that is then broken down in the software and gives you just an amazing amount of information. And one of the things that I love about the Sound Health Portal is Sherry has really come up with amazing pie charts and graphs and things that give you a lot of information in a visual way that's really like, oh, there's the thing I need to work on now that I really want to pay attention to. And that'll make a lot more sense once you see it done. And it really is, I love the Sound Health Portal. And now I'll say that you can go back up to campaigns toward the top of the page. And campaigns are current free software possibilities where you can have your voice run through. And some of the current campaigns are neuroplasticity, biodiet, and Parkinson's. And there are others that are always rotating bringing in some of the software analysis packages for free run-throughs. And to do that, you just scroll down a bit further. You sign up for a free membership. They don't spam you. They don't sell your name. They don't do anything other than send you a report with that free sign-up. Choose your campaign, and then the system will walk you through recording two 30 to 40-second recordings right from your computer. I do recommend using a microphone, and I think that the a great value is a Samsung Go mic, particularly because we're still Zooming. Slowly we're coming out of COVIDness, but we're still Zooming, and having a decent microphone for that really helps the audio quality. And the Samsung Go mic is less than $40, maybe 30 and you can find it at the soundhealthoptionssite.com in the store. And it's only about three inches long. I have one clipped right to my back of my keyboard right now for web events. And using a microphone does help the input or the intake because it's a little more sensitive than just shouting at your computer. But so you'll be walked through recording the two 30 to second 40 minute second recordings. You'll submit those recordings with the campaign that you're interested in. And within two to 24 hours, you'll get a report in the mail with all sorts of information I recommend having a cup of tea and sitting down and reviewing it. And if you have a practitioner who's open to it, you could take that information, that report to them, and you could talk about some of those things that you want to be working on. And if you want to go further, then you can go to soundhealthoptions.com and read more information there. There are all sorts of articles. There are videos. There's just a ton of information there, write up about Sherry's work. It's really 
it's a lot of really great information. And now with the Silent Hill portal, it makes it really much easier to do wherever you are. I actually carry the Samsung Go mic with me so that if I'm visiting somebody who wants to know more about what's going on in their system, I can plug it right into their computer. It might involve a dongle or something sometimes and record it right from their computer and submit a campaign and they get the information back. It's, I, I'm really quite fond of the sound of the portal. It's come a long way. And if you want to listen to a replay of this show, you can go to soundhealthoptions.com, click on the radio tab, and on that page will be the, the PR flyer for today's show with Mike Anthony. And there, there will be a link back to the show notes and everything here, extra links, anything that I'm taking notes as we're talking, and I'll post those notes there. And you can go there and find that information, and or you can also search in any of your podcast aggregator. At the top of the page, we have Stitcher and Pocket Cast as the examples. And soon we'll now have, uh, I just got us added into Audible as a podcast, and also Amazon has a podcast section as well. And now you'll be able to find us there. And you can go to any of those podcast aggregators, which is just a fancy word for app on your phone or your computer. And search for either Sherry Edwards or Talk to Me Guy, and you'll be able to find them that way. And you can also now go to TalkToMeGuy.com, and you'll see well over 300 episodes. I think we're up to 400 episodes there now, slowly aggregating in. And find there and further show notes that I take and extra links because I have a little more space there. And if you have any uh, questions or if you have a suggestion for a guest, you can also go there and there's a microphone on the lower right-hand side of the screen. And you can either do this from mobile or from your computer and leave me a voice message. And I will take note of that and possibly get back to you. With that, Mike Anthony has been a professional actor and not professional bartender since he graduated from Wayne State University with a Master of Arts degree in theater. His first book, Life at Hamilton, chronicles the extraordinary time he spent as a theater bartender with an up-close perspective of Hamilton, an American musical as it rocketed into Broadway history. Beyond his life in theater, Mike's journey took an unexpected turn when his too young dad suddenly died. Then, when a stranger's unpredictable, unpredictable phone call delivers a message that Mike's dad had contacted her from the other side. It kicks off a chain of events that would entirely change Mike's family's perspective on death, life, and the transcendent nature of love, leading him down a remarkable path of discovery. He now spends a good portion of his time exploring evidence suggestive of the survival of consciousness beyond the demise of the physical body. A part of Mike's story is told in the Netflix documentary series, Surviving Death. Mike uses his acting abilities, often during the Christmas season, at the theater at Monmouth in Maine. Mike is still the bar manager at Hamilton, though on hiatus due to COVID, currently residing in Milford, Connecticut. He is in the midst of working on several projects, including his next book and a documentary. Mike joins us to discuss his book, 
Love, Dad. How my father died, then then told me he didn't. Welcome, Mike. Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for having me. I have to... There's so many directions of possibility here, but I have to ask this part. Because mm-hmm. I've read the book, and I know... <laughs> how did you... How did your path from being a science teacher or a possible mm-hmm. science teacher to being an actor-writer happen? That seems <laughs> divergent. How did that, what is that story? That has to be a great story. I live such a divergent life right now. Yeah. Um, it, it, I mean, science had always been what I'd loved. When I was a kid, I loved it. And I had an amazing science teacher in middle school and then high school named Mr. Sawyer. And uh, the plan was to follow in his footsteps and become a high school science teacher. And that's what I went to college for initially. In the background, I had... Um, always also loved theater. Uh, I was a tremendously shy kid, tr- like painfully shy. Uh, but I found uh, theater in, um, in high school. I tell that story in the first book, Life at Hamilton. And that, that totally changed my, my life, uh, socially speaking, and I was able to break out of that shell. Uh, so when I was studying science in college, I was still doing some plays. Uh, you know, in my, in the downtime. And I ended up having a minor for a while in theater, Uh, but I just loved it so much. Uh, I had an acting professor tell me that if this is truly where your passion is, you know, you can't have a a plan B, which is often (laughs) the suggested course to definitely have a plan B if you want to be an actor. Uh, But he's like, you know, that's not the way to go. You got to jump in completely. And uh, I did. So I, I ended up majoring instead in uh, acting and then went to grad school uh, to get an MFA in it as well. Uh, so that's how that um, shift of course occurred. And I, I was laughing as I wrote this note down. How did the bartending happen? I mean, I, I know in, in terms of, you know, I need a job. I need to do something. I'm an actor. What was I thinking? There's that. Right. Um, but you needed, you know, how did the bartending come? But, but I have to sidebar by saying, as I was thinking about it, that bartending seems like the perfect job in the sense of being an actor because it gives you opportunity to be like a thousand people a night in terms of your interactions with people. But how did the bartending occur and how did the Hamilton bartending occur? Yeah, it happened by, you know, I moved to New York City after getting my, um, my degree and, and uh, with, with the intention of becoming a, a, a spectacularly successful actor. You know, my college professor, again, he had assured me that if I had gone all in as I did, uh, things would all work out. Uh, so, you know, a few months into living in New York City, I realized that my the little acting that I was doing was not going to pay my New York City rent, uh, which, is, you know, as people are aware, uh, it's yeah. one of the more expensive uh, cities to live in. So I, um, I had been doing a lot of temp work, which was horrible, soul-sucking, you know, <laughs> stuffing envelopes and winterless jobs. And then uh, I did a play with some people and they all worked together as bartenders on Broadway. And at the end of the, uh, the, the run of the play, they asked me if I would like a job with them. And I said, well, of course, I would absolutely love to try that, even though I had never done any bartending at all before. Uh, and that's why I make that joke about it. Not, not a professional bartender. I had no idea how to bartend when I 
took this job. Um, so I, I took the job thinking I'd have it for a few months, you know, until the career kicked in, the acting career kicked in. And then I feel like I blinked. And uh, 14 years later, I was still behind that bar. Um, but I, I would change not a single step of that journey. I mean, it, and it ended up leading to such wonderful experiences. And one of them is Hamilton. Uh, I stayed as a bartender for so long at this job that I ended up becoming a manager uh, at the Richard Rogers Theater, which is where Hamilton happens to make its home. Um, and so that that gave me just um, these these remarkable uh, experiences that I could not have imagined. And that's where that that's where the first book came from. Mm-hmm. And now I, I'd like you to talk about your your father, the, the mm-hmm. pre other side father, the, the man that you grew up with and loved and adored. That he, yes, he was a remarkable guy. Uh, my dad was not your average human being. Simply put, he was full of innate goodness. Uh, it was impossible to not be with my dad, just be in a room with him. He didn't even have to be speaking and not feel better. He just had this vibration about him uh, that was incredible. And in fact, I, I tell the story in Love Dad that when I was a kid, um, you know, we were not a particularly religious family, uh, but just in case, my mom uh, uh, put us into catechism and got us baptized and all that stuff. Just in case, baptism is the only way to get into quote-unquote heaven. She wanted to cover her bases. Um, In catechism, we started learning about angels, you know, these all-loving beings that assist people here on earth. And it struck me that my dad had all of those qualities. And uh, one day in the kitchen, I have this very clear memory. I I must've been maybe four or or something like that. Uh, And he was making his, uh, his famous, his only dish, uh, French toast. And I said, dad, you got to tell me, I promise I will keep this between you and I, you know, this will be our secret. I understand why you might have to keep the secret, but are you an angel? And he said, "Uh, what do you mean? And I said, you know, well, you're just, you're just so nice to everybody. And he said, oh, I mean, well, you, you know, you should always try to be nice. And that was all that he said, which I was sure was exactly what an angel uh, in disguise would say. Um, and and I, I really did ask the question from a sincere place because my dad seemed so different from um, everyone else that I was in contact with. Not that my mom and everybody else weren't also wonderful people. They are, she is and they are. But my dad just had this very special energy about him. And he worked as a FedEx uh, delivery guy. You know, he was kind of this very blue collar guy. Uh, um, kept, you know, he was very humble, incredibly, the most humble man that I've ever met. Um, and, and just lived this quiet but immensely beautiful life. And he was the absolute rock of for our family he he was the guy that we went to if there was anything that we needed help with uh, no matter what as i said uh just being in a room with my dad made you feel better about things uh so you know that's the that's the level of love that's the kind of guy that we're that we're talking about mm-hmm. and now we're going to jump to your father dies suddenly without warning. He didn't have a long illness. He didn't have, he was just like, and then he was dead. Right. And, and right. then you get a message. Now you're a, I want to, I want to paint that picture again. So you wanted to be a science teacher and then right. your father dies 
and you're getting a message from a stranger <laughs> that your yeah. dad had contacted her from the other side. What right. does your mind do with that? What is your <laughs> what is that reaction? Yeah, well, so even though, as I said, I'd always loved science, um, I had I've also always sensed that I. I think there are probably places that science is not able to reach, that no matter how sophisticated our instrumentation gets, uh, we may, there are places, if that's the right word, uh, that our scientific uh, instruments might not ever be able to measure. Uh, I always felt that there was um, something subtle about our existence um, that that our senses, our five senses don't pick up on and that we're more than our body. So th though I love science and I, to this day, I love science and what it has, what it has been able to accomplish, uh, accomplish with the human intellect, um, I still have always maintained the sense um, that it's only um, applicable so far, right? It can only go so far. But when my dad died, um, I was suddenly being crushed by what my professors, my college biology professors would say, because, of course, the mainstream materialist scientific paradigm tells us that there is absolutely no such thing as any form of life after death. Right. The, the materialistic scientific uh, paradigm says that the self, what we consider to be self, is an illusion. Uh, created by the brain, and it, you know, there's a whole the, the psychological underpinnings of this are are deep, but um, that that's the bottom line. That what creates the sense of self are chemical reactions happening in the brain, and that when the brain stops receiving oxygen, uh, so too do those chemical reactions stop. And what I thought of as my dad is is gone forever. Period. You know, end of story. And, and those lectures from my professors uh, were suddenly no match for that vague sense that I'd always had, that science uh, could not ever tell us the whole story, potentially. Uh, um, suddenly that sense um, was, was entirely uh, dismissed and replaced by the cold, hard science, uh, quote-unquote, that tells us death is the absolute end of, of life. And that was a devastating thought, obviously. It had actually caused a full-blown, um, what I would call a, a, an existential uh, slash spiritual crisis in me. Because if someone as amazing and wonderful as my father, if everything that he ever was could suddenly, suddenly be gone as though he'd never walked the planet, I was having a really hard time uh, figuring out what the point to anything could be. You know, why get up in the morning? Why build skyscrapers? Why do all of the things that we do if it all just disappears as though it had never been? Um, so that's the place I was in when this call came in, this phone call came in to my mother's house from, as you said, a complete stranger who had never met my dad or my family who claimed to be a medium a person who was able to communicate with the dead. So mediumship was something I had been aware of from when I was in high school, there was a show on television called Crossing Over with Don Edward that I know a lot of people are familiar with, you know, and now there's the Long Island medium. And, and now there are a lot of uh, different mediumistic shows on television. Um, and though I found them intriguing and interesting, um, you know, they were television shows. 
uh, I had no way of knowing how much of it could possibly be real. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, it cannot be real because surely if there was real evidence that there are people walking on this planet who commute, who can communicate with people who are no longer in bodies, you know, uh, the, 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 AKA the dead, surely one of my science professors would have taught me about it. You know, if there is real evidence for this right after uh, the lecture about um, uh, ribosomes and how ribosomes function in cells, the professor would have then said, and oh, P.S., by the way, there's also evidence that some people can communicate with the dead. But because no science teacher had ever said that, I just had to assume that there couldn't be very much to this uh, phenomenon, if anything at all. And more likely, it's just a well-produced and well-edited uh, television show. So that was where I was um, when this phone call happened. However, you know, as you can imagine, being in the place of deep grief that we were in, you know, you'll reach for anything. You'll, you'll grasp onto anything. And obviously, with all of my heart, I wanted to believe uh, that this woman, uh, this, this absolute stranger, had heard from my disembodied dad. Um, but... Uh, it was going to take, it was not something that I could simply just believe. It was going to take a lot of evidence uh, before I could be on board with, with this whole idea of uh, mediumship as an actual phenomenon. And there, <laughs> I'm laughing because of the chapter titles. There's a couple chapters in Love Dad, tests, I'll call them tests, because they were tests mm. that you came up with. One of, one of the chapters is, <laughs> which made me laugh, these both made me laugh. Is there a yeah. manual for this? And yes. then perhaps my personal favorite was, can you hear me now? Chapter. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> because of those tests. Could you talk about those tests that you, I, I have to pre-say that I think it's amusing in a certain way that you were talking with your dead father to set up these tests. Like you were in yeah. your mind, you were okay with that part. You know, like I'm talking to dad to say to do these tests with yeah. the, the medium, Christina. That was sort of a thing that was like somehow we'll do this and then getting yeah. confirmation. But talk about these these tests that you set up. Yeah. So once this came, this phone call came in and by the way, there people ask me all the time, well, how much money did this woman want from you and all of that? There was absolutely no money exchanged in this, uh, this first woman that contacted us. Uh, she, it was completely just out of the, um, what I now see as the kindness of her heart. Um, and she truly believed that it really was my dad and she felt this responsibility to, to call us. So, um, after that first encounter with quote unquote mediumship, I, I, I ended up talking with that woman for a long time because uh, I wanted to try to get to the bottom of, of what had happened. And she seemed to be a compassionate, kind, uh, lovely woman to me. And so I then I told my sister all about the conversation we had. And I said, you know, I don't know. It seems to me like uh, something real might be happening with this woman. You know, she said a couple of things that I could not understand how she could possibly know. So after telling my sister about the conversation, the, the following morning, my sister was driving to work and just happened to hear on the radio here in Connecticut uh, a segment with a, someone calling herself a professional evidential medium, a woman named Angelina Diana. Now, my sister just happened to hear this on the radio the day after we had this conversation. So the timing of it to, to Jan, my sister, was shocking. 
And she decided to get in touch with this woman and hire her to, come, to do a reading for us, to come to our house and, and do whatever it is that uh, mediums claim to do. And I thought, well, okay, here is my chance to apply the scientific method in at least a very casual way. Again, I'll, I'll, I want to be clear, you know, I'm not a scientist. I ended up becoming an actor. Uh, so the, the, when I say test, you know, they were personal, casual experiments that I was setting up. But I was trying to apply in some small way the scientific method, right? So uh, I decided, as you said, uh, and so did my sister, to talk to my father and say, okay, dad, if this thing is real, if this woman can actually do this, I want you to deliver a very specific message to me. Because in the day of Google, right, in the time of Google and the internet, it's so easy to get information on people. And uh, if a person knows your phone number and your name, I mean, and your address, for, I mean, they can just get all kinds of information. My dad's obituary was out there somewhere on the internet, you know. Um, so I, I needed her to come up with something that I would know there was no way she could have used any normal means to gather. You know, um, so what happened was as she was coming to my our house that that evening, I, I drove to my dad's house. My dad lived right around the corner from my mom's house. They had been divorced when I was very young, but stayed very close. So they only lived a few miles apart. So I was alone. My dad lived in a in a back lot in Connecticut. It was a very secluded lot surrounded by nothing but trees. And uh, I said, Dad, OK, I, we got to do this experiment. And I'm, I was suddenly flooded for whatever reason, with this memory. When, when we were children, my, my sister and I, when my parents first got divorced, we would spend the weekends with my father, and we were so excited to see him on Friday nights, we just couldn't fall asleep at night, you know, because of the novelty. We were all sleeping together on my grandmother's floor, and it was like camping, and we just couldn't fall asleep. So my dad would play with our hair to help us fall asleep. And the poor guy would, would then have to do this for hours because I'd say, Dad, five more minutes, five more minutes. So until his <laughs> hands were cramping up, you know, he'd play with our hair. So I'm standing at my, in my dad's house and I'm suddenly flooded with that memory. And I said, okay, this is it. I need this woman to mention my hair. If she does not mention my hair, I don't care what else she says. I'm not going to believe that this is real. Got it, dad? And yeah, I, even as I'm saying that, I'm thinking, as you just said, this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm talking to the air here in my father's house. Um, but for the sake of science, I'm going to do this little experiment. Later on that night, she comes and does <clears throat> the reading, and it lasted for about an hour and a half. Um, and I was scrutinizing everything this woman was doing. I mean, I, I was paying incredibly close attention to, to things like where is she looking, for instance. I wanted to see when she first entered the house. Is she going to look around uh, to see if there are pictures up on the wall, for instance, you know, to, to try to gather information? I, I was really trying to, in my minute detail, um, watch what she was doing. And just like the first medium, Christina, that had contacted us out of the blue, uh, it quickly seemed like this woman was a kind, compassionate woman. Um, she, there was nothing about her that rang as false to me or deceitful. Uh, not that that could, would mean that there couldn't be anything, but just my first impression was she seems like a sane person, first of all, not, not a crazy person uh, who hears voices. She seemed totally sane, totally kind, and, and, and actually compassionate. Spent a long time speaking with us about 
just the idea of grief uh, and what that does to us uh, and so just sort of practical um, uh, aspects of grief and, and how to get through it. So uh, she seemed normal, for lack of a better word. Everything she starts, well, once she starts doing her thing, right, she goes in this sort of semi-meditative state and she starts claiming now that my loved ones are coming through and she starts delivering these messages and everything she's saying is, is correct and accurate in a way that, I, that my, the scientific part of my brain is reeling, trying to figure out how she could be doing this because again, According to mainstream science, this woman has to be lying. There's, there's no other explanation, right? According to the mainstream paradigm, she has to be tricking us somehow and getting this information by some normal means. But as she's saying the things she's saying, some of them are so specific. For instance, almost like quoting a conversation, a very personal conversation that my sister and I had had the day before at my dad's house. Um, and, and there's just no way that I can fathom she could know these things. I mean, short of having an ex-CIA agent on her staff who had been following us around for a week with high-tech audio equipment, you know, spying on us, I could not imagine how she could be doing this. And it was so remarkable. I completely forgot about my little experiment because, because we were blown away. And, and by the end of it, we were weeping. Everyone in that living room in my mom's house, there were seven of us, we were sobbing because it seemed like the only, the, the, the simplest, the Occam's razor explanation was that my dad was somehow communicating with this woman. I mean, that's what it felt like. That's how amazing it was. So if she was a con artist, you know, if you are someone who is a, a snake oil salesperson, you know when you're ahead, right? You know when to quit. And if she is faking this stuff, she looks out at these sobbing fools that she has totally just duped, and she knows she's going to get a year's worth of work out of these people, right? These dupes are going to leave here and tell everybody they know about the amazing night that they had with this woman who can talk to dead people. Um, so you would, you would wrap up at that point, right? But instead, she actually was wrapping up. We're telling her this was the most amazing thing we've ever experienced. We're thanking her from the bottom of our hearts. Our faces, again, are strewn with tears. And then as she's about to leave, she stops. She was in the middle of a sentence, and she stops. And then apropos of nothing, Richard, she looked right at me, nobody else. She looked right at me and said, your dad wants to talk about your hair? <laughs> and in that moment, I mean, this still gives me chills when I tell the story because it, in that moment, none of my professors, no scientist, no matter how credential, could have told me that that was anything other than some sort of psychic phenomenon happening. I mean, that's how it felt in that moment. Um, and, and that's, that's really where uh, Love Dad begins. That's where the book uh, really begins. And why do you in the I can't remember because I've listened and read so much about you before the show that I can't it blurs together for me. Sure. Um, but somewhere you talk about Robin talking about the lights <laughs> yeah. and that seemed to be a real tipping point for you. And I'm yeah. wondering why that is. So tell us about the Robin story. 
Yeah. So after we had that experience with this woman, uh, as you can imagine, it's a very thrilling prospect, the idea that our deceased loved ones, especially ones that are loved as dearly as my dad is, um, it's a thrilling prospect that there are people walking around this planet who might be able to hear him. So uh, we started testing, and I'll use that word again, we started testing other mediums. Um, because again, we were still, even though I was blown away by that moment, uh, you know, my skeptical, the skeptical part of my brain very quickly kicks in and starts thinking, well, what about this? What about that? You know, it's very, my brain uh, would not let me have it, you know, for very long before these doubts started to creep in. So we started to test other mediums. And uh, one of them is a woman named Robin, again, a medium in Connecticut. Uh, and I tell the story of meeting her in the, in the book. Um, now, w- when I first heard about, when this, when this thing happened with Angelina, I was, I thought, surely people who can do this well, like Angelina can, they must be on the radio. They must be on television like John Edwards. You know, they've got to be famous. They've got to be famous people. I mean, how, there can't be that many people who can do this. And if you can't, I mean, I, I can't imagine what the, how many people must be clamoring for their services, you know. Uh, they must have bodyguards, these people. <clears throat> so, my sister found this woman named Robin through a friend of a friend. Uh, she did not do any advertising whatsoever. She had this very simple website, and my sister found her phone number and called her and made an appointment. So her office, the office, is in this little strip mall in Connecticut, very nondescript. In, in fact, my sister and I drove past it twice uh, before we found it because she doesn't have a sign. Uh, on the, on the uh, you know, there was a signage outside that had some of the different businesses on it, and her, hers was not on it. So we couldn't even find this little place. Um, you know, and here, here I am thinking this, this is going to be like, you know, traveling to Delphi and going up the mountain, you know, <laughs> finding the Oracle of Delphi. We can't even find this place, right? So finally we, we, we find the address and we pull into the parking lot and there's a woman who's standing outside smoking and we ask her, you know, do you, do you know Robin by any chance? Well, I mean, we're even afraid to say to her uh, she's a medium because this woman looks to me like a no BS kind of woman, you know, she's, she's smoking on her cigarette and I was sure she was the sort of woman that if I told her I was here to see a medium, she would slap me uh, in the face and say, what kind of an idiot would believe something like that? So he said, do you know, do you know where this woman Robin's office is? And she said, yeah, it's, it's right down the hall there. You know, are you here for an appointment? And she said, and we said, yes. And she said, okay, just, you know, go sit in those chairs out there. I'll be right in. And I was like, oh my God, this woman is Robin? You know, like not at all the picture I had in my mind of what a medium was, quote unquote, supposed to look like. Just not at all matching up with my expectations. Um, So my sister and I are thinking, oh, my goodness, this is going to be ridiculous. You know, this is just going to be absurd. Um, But we, we go in and sit down. She lights a candle and she immediately begins. And she says this sentence for right off the bat. Your dad likes what to me, right, right to me, not to my sister, to me. Your dad likes what you did with the lights at work. Verbatim, that's the sentence she said. That sentence held an enormous amount of meaning to me because that week uh, I had gotten a new job. I had been moved up to a bigger theater on Broadway where the Lion King, the Minskoff Theater, 
So I got into promotion basically. And the first thing I did that week was install new lighting around the bars. And this was a big deal because to change anything in a Broadway theater like this, especially something where something like Lion, the Lion King is playing, um, you know, <clears throat> you have to do a good job and you want to make sure, you're, you know, everything is done well because uh, you're changing the appearance of the inside of a Broadway theater. So it, it felt like a big deal. Uh, and my, my assistant and I, you know, spent a lot of time picking out the, the lighting and everything. And so I had just installed them. Uh, and I finished that job the day before uh, my sister and I had this reading. Now, I didn't tell my sister about the fact that I had installed these lights. Uh, I, told, I, I didn't tell anyone in my family about that. That was just something that I had done the day before. Um, so when she says, your dad likes what you did with the lights at work, a, she knows immediately that it's my dad we are there to hear from. Now, that is not obvious by any stretch because, my, you know, my sister and I at that time were 34, 33, 35 years old. You know, uh, it's possible we have a parent who's deceased, but not necessarily likely that we do at that age. Um, for her to very quickly, immediately, not very quickly, immediately say, that this is your dad that I have here, that stood out to me. And then to say, he knows what you did with the lights at work. That was a sentence that I could not imagine would apply very widely, right? One of the, what, one of the ways people who fake this do it, and there are, of course, and sadly, people who do fake this, and that's why mediumship is so, uh, has such a fraught history and why it is so difficult to now get any of this science. And there is science available out there uh, done by real scientists, not bartenders, but that's why it's so hard to get it out into the mainstream <laughs> is because of the history of fraud in mediumship. Um, and one of the ways the people who, who fake this fake it <clears throat> is by um, giving us relatively general information that our brain personalizes. And that's something called the Forer effect, named after a professor for, and I go into that in the book as well. Um, our brains are, are machines, uh, and they're um, trained through millions of years of evolution to do certain things. So one of the things that our brains do is uh, we very quickly personalize information. So if I say to you, uh, Richard, did you, you know, is there someone in your family who, who pl played chess? Now, that's a very general statement. Chances are there is someone in your family that plays chess. And as soon as I ask you that, chances are your brain goes somewhere and you think of whoever this might be. And maybe you even start to press it a little bit and, and start reaching and grasping a little bit. <clears throat> the bottom line is our brains help these mediums who are faking this. Our brains can easily help them to do it because A, you know, we might want to believe that this is true. And B, uh, we just tend to personalize the information and what we recall later on, uh, what strikes us sort of viscerally is not the sentence itself. It's what our brain did with the sentence, if that makes sense. So, but this statement, your dad likes what you did with the lights at work Again, she said that whole thing seemed like an incredibly specific thing that would not widely apply or make very clear sense to a lot of people. Um, and, and then everything else she said was extraordinarily accurate. Almost everything she said was of that level of specificity. So she ended up giving us perhaps the best reading that we've ever had. Uh, readings by Robin is her name. And she, she wrote to me after, after, um, 
uh, after reading the book herself. So she knows that it's out there. And uh, uh, she said, it's okay if I tell people her name. So it's readings by Robin. And um, yeah, that, that was a, a, a definite turning point where I realized, oh, uh, you know, you don't have to be uh, on television and doing this stuff. There are people out there leading relatively anonymous lives uh, that claim this ability. And to me, some of them seem to actually have this ability. And how do you, in, in the process of, of seeing mediums and having sessions with them, how do you separate out the ESP potential? In other words, the, the idea of yeah. how do we put that in a separate category of ex, extrasensory perception, the ability to read somebody else's mind? Right. How do you so, separate that? I, I understand this part with the talking about the lights, because as you said, that's a very specific, it's, I'll say it this way, obvious that your dad saw that from wherever he was, is, I, I think of mm-hmm. it more as the quantum field rather than the phrase, the other side, mm-hmm. the other side mm-hmm. connotes something that I think is a little, that's a whole nother show. So I mm-hmm. think of it as the quantum mm-hmm. field. And so he's hanging mm-hmm. out someplace. And yes. he sees that and he's tell you know, she has that information from, you know, her connection with him, whatever that is, however that occurs. Right. But how do you right. separate out the ESP possibility? Yes, that's a great question. And that is the question facing people. So the, again, mainstream science believes that there is no such thing as ESP or anything quote unquote paranormal, right? Mainstream science believes that consciousness Uh, our brain's influence stops at the border of our skull, right? Uh, You're going to be hard-pressed to find a professor teaching biology at a a mainstream university who who, um, gives a a lecture on the evidence for uh, psi ability or any kind of psychic ability, even though there there is an immense amount of evidence out there. So, but people who have gone beyond... uh, the the paradigm the main paradigm and have come to accept that clearly uh, there are instances where something is happening that science cannot understand what we call paranormal and I don't like that word necessarily because that suggests that you know it's become almost a dirty word paranormal but um, mm-hmm. yeah um, <clears throat> but people who have accepted that there definitely are times when things happen that our current science cannot explain. Um, The big question for those folks now is, well, is it evidence of survival of consciousness beyond death, or is it just evidence of some human ability that we do not yet understand? That does not necessarily mean a person has survived the the death of their body, right? Is there, are there abilities that the living brain has that we just have not learned yet. Um, and, and psychic ability or ESP would be one of those abilities, right? So the ability of one human brain to pick up on information in another human brain, whether that's by a field that the brain is giving off. You know, we know the brain gives off a, a field, an electromagnetic field. Uh, is, is somehow information contained in that field in a way we don't yet understand? Um, we don't know. And that's a question that I don't think can ever be 100% answered. You know, there's a guy named Stephen Brownie who's a fantastic researcher. And um, as he says, you know, that's something that we probably won't be able to ever say with complete authority that it is survival or it is psi because <clears throat> uh, psychic ability 
some people put no limits on it. They, they believe that if it is out there, then it might be basically a limitless ability. And my brain here sitting in my house in Milford might have the ability without my knowledge uh, to pick up on information in a brain sitting somewhere in uh, Ghana right now or wherever on the planet. You know, this field might exist everywhere, and it might be that every brain has access to every aspect of the, uh, of the field or, or whatever the right word is to describe. Maybe it's the quantum field, as you said. <clears throat> so that, that said, to me, there are uh, indications that push it more towards the side of survival of consciousness rather than a human ability uh, uh, to connect to other living brains. So it very quickly occurred to me, what if this is to, what if she's reading my mind, right? This woman who talked about my hair. Now, when she said it, I wasn't thinking about it because I had, like I said, I had totally forgotten about it because the whole night was amazing. So if it, if it was telepathy, she pulled it out of my brain at a moment when it was not on my own mind consciously. So she would have had a, so that's a neat trick her brain was able to do if that's what it was. But I said to myself, okay, uh, let's try to rule out uh, brain-to-brain telepathy, at least sitting in the same room with someone like this. So my sister and I went to another guy named Jonathan Lewis, and uh, he's on Long Island. And with him, I did an experiment with my mom uh, where we, she was not coming with us. It was just my sister and my brother-in-law and I going to this. And we said, okay, mom, we're going to leave. And once we do, I want you to talk to dad by yourself. And ask him to deliver a message that you're not going to tell us. So if the medium tells us this thing, I'll know it's not in my brain. It, you know, could not be in any of the brains sitting in the room. So my mom did that. She talked to my dad after we left. And sure enough, Jonathan Lewis, uh, he gave a, a fantastically accurate reading. Again, it was, it was mind-blowing. There were only a couple of things that did not make sense. One of the things that did not make sense was the message my mom had asked my dad to deliver. So... For me, that at least ruled out brain to brain telepathy or, or a mind reading with someone in the room with you, right? Someone, someone who believes in, in or posits the super psi theory, again, meaning that basically there are no limits to psychic ability, would say, well, Jonathan Lewis just got that out of your mom's brain sitting on the porch in Guilford, Connecticut. There's no way for me, you know, there's no science that can be done, as far as I know, that can 100% rule out what, what that person is saying, all right? There's, there's no way that we can use the scientific method, as far as I know. If we give psychic ability no limits, uh, it's hard to rule anything out using the scientific method. But logically speaking, it, uh, it, it feels to me, I'll use the word feels to me, that it's unlikely, it, it seems less likely that Jonathan Lewis somehow, his brain, uh, without his knowledge, somehow found the correct brain that had this information in it, uh, than my dad was just standing there giving him this information. That seems the simpler answer to me. Uh, that seems the Occam's razor answer. So, yeah, I don't know that you can ever 100% rule out ESP, but there are indications throughout the research uh, that it is something else, that it is separate entities displaying their own agency. 
Uh, for instance, there are things called drop-in communicators, right? And in this case, someone might be having a reading and a complete stranger, a spirit, a quote-unquote spirit that they do not know, have never known, drops in to the uh, reading, intending to get a message to someone else. And when they finally, when the living person finally finds this person they're meant to get the message to, they, they find out, oh my gosh, that was all accurate information. So we'd have to ask the question, if it's just ESP uh, or Psi, Super Psi, why, what is the, why does that, what's the trigger for some uh, information just floating out there in the quantum field to suddenly, uh, with apparent agency and personality, you know, because often it's not just information, there's personality often connected to the way these messages come through. Why would this suddenly come out of the quantum field for no apparent reason uh, to deliver this message to this stranger, you know? Um, uh, so it, it's a complicated question. Uh, it's a good question. Um, but it, 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 I, I want to say again, though, that if that were proven to be, if it were proven to be, quote unquote, just telepathy, that alone shatters the current materialist scientific paradigm. That alone totally brings down the foundations of um, the, the foundations we've built uh, a lot of our uh, our beliefs on scientifically. I think it all. I think much of it goes into the category of spooky, but the definition of spooky by Einstein—that was an actual mm -hmm. term he would use—spooky mm -hmm. for things that he couldn't explain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Einstein, uh, you know, he famously said that uh, he called it spooky action at a distance because when uh, Einstein could never get behind in his whole life, he fought again he, to his dying day. He was fighting against uh, what quantum physicists were starting to uh, believe was the case. Uh, and one of the things that quantum physics gives us is quantum entanglement. And what and now this stuff has been borne out right now. We have now we have the means to do some of these experiments. And now we know that Einstein was not right about this. Einstein was a brilliant guy, right? He was way ahead of his time in so many ways. Uh, you know, he, his, his beautiful, amazing, elegant equations answered questions that we would not have the scientific instrumentation to test for 50 years sometimes, you know, but we ended up finding out all those years down the road that he was right about relativity, for instance, and time truly is relative for every single position. Every single thing has its own um, uh, passage of time, right? That sounds crazy to us. That's what the theory, theory of uh, general relativity told Einstein was true, and we now know that it is true, right? We Eventually, we put a clock, uh, two synchronized clocks, one stayed on the Earth, one went into a space shuttle, for instance, and sure enough, the one that went up into space recorded less time than the one that stayed on Earth. So we knew from that that time truly is a relative experience. Um, but about quantum entanglement, Einstein was wrong. And what quantum entanglement shows us is that if you have two, uh, let's say you have two electrons that have become entangled. And this is, a, this is a, a word, a lot of these words we throw around, but we don't actually truly deeply mean, know what they mean, okay? Um, even, even scientists, uh, I mean, this stuff is bizarre. The world of quantum physics is uh, <laughs> mind-blowing and bizarre. But you can have two electrons in contact, you know, with each, touch, with each other, they become entangled, and then you can separate them by any distance whatsoever. It does not matter. They can be light years away from each other, right? Light years away from each other. 
if you affect the spin on one of those electrons, it instantaneously does the same thing to the other electron, instantaneously, for no reason that we can understand. Um, so in, in, in Einstein's universe, a signal has to be sent in order for one thing to affect another thing, meaning there has to be time involved, right? There needs to be time for the signal to be sent. If you can have two electrons on opposite sides of the universe instantaneously affect each other, that means time is not involved. Somehow these things are connected in a way that we simply cannot understand. And that's what he called spooky action at a distance uh, that he fought to his dying day. He famously said, you know, I do not, I, I can't believe that uh, God plays dice with the universe. Um, and that is in reference to the unpredictability of, uh, of, of the quantum world, which again has also been borne out time and time again in the lab now. Uh, yeah, the, the, for, for me, where we are now with quantum physics, for any scientist, any scientist to say that anything is impossible uh, sounds just unwise to me. That is absolutely the perfect cue to talk about ectoplasm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about you meeting ectoplasm. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, so ectoplasm uh, was a word I was sure was coined by Harold Ramis uh, in the script for, <laughs> for, for Ghostbusters. You know, uh, I knew ectoplasm as the slimy stuff that that Slimer, the ghost, left on the, the uh, shelves of the New York Public Library in the movie. Uh, there's a woman named Leslie Kane who's a fantastic journalist. She's a journalist for the New York Times. Uh, for more crazy, spooky stuff, uh, she's actually the woman uh, who broke the, the UFO story about the Pentagon's UFO program. Uh, she's heavily involved in all of that, and there's much more to come in that whole uh, area, I, I think. Um, so she's a highly credentialed uh, journalist and of the highest integrity as well. I, I can now say that I now know her very, very well. She's become a good friend. But before I knew her, I happened upon her book called Surviving Death, which is what the uh, Netflix series is based on. And I knew Leslie's name from her first book, from a book that she'd written like 10 years before that was a bestseller about UFOs, where she really did the hardcore journalistic work to get generals and pilots on the record about what they were seeing, which at that time was very, very hard uh, to do. But she did it. So when I found her book, Surviving Death, uh, she spent 10 years investigating the various lines of evidence suggesting that consciousness is something separate from the human brain. And I was thrilled to find someone of her level of credentials had done this sort of research. And the book is fantastic. By the time I had found her book, though, most of what she wrote, I was already familiar with because I would started making my own documentary about this stuff. By that point, you know, I was uh, interviewing uh, people in the field, uh, uh, people who have had near-death experiences, uh, people who study children who remember past lives, uh, scientists, real scientists, for instance, at the University of Virginia, University of Arizona, who are studying mediumship. I mean, I had done a lot of work by this point uh, to try to learn what I could about the, the hard evidence that's out there. Uh, so most of her book I was familiar with. However, at the end of the book, she gets to what's called physical mediumship. Uh, which I had not been familiar with. 
So mediumship, we can divide down into two, two categories, mental and physical. Mental is the one that we've been talking about with John Edward and the Long Island medium, you know, these people who are in conscious states and they claim they're delivering messages, uh, you know, uh, while they're at least in a semi-conscious state. Physical mediums claim that they go into a deep trance and when they're in that trance, it's so deep, they don't even know what happens anymore. They don't remember anything that happens while, while they're in it. And the quote-unquote spirit world then uses their physical apparatus, uses their body, uses their vocal cords to speak directly to us uh, from, from wherever it is that they are. And in the most advanced forms of this physical mediumship, uh, the spirit world can use a substance called ectoplasm which they claim is a part of every human body, but some people have more of it than others. They can use this substance and, and draw it out of the medium and then basically dip their spirit bodies into this stuff to physically materialize in the room. So in the most advanced cases, my dad could be standing, according to these people, literally standing in the middle of the room, solid, so that he could talk to me with his own voice and I could hug him and he could hug me back. And then he would dissolve back into the floor. Now, that sounds utterly absurd to most people, right? That sounds like we're obviously talking about crazy people who have convinced themselves of things. And, it, and were it not in Leslie's book, I would not have given it the weight that I did. But she writes about an experience she had with a guy named Stuart Alexander, a physical medium in a very small town in England who had never sought publicity in his entire life, uh, who does this just for his friends and his family. Uh, and there's no money. He's never made money on this either. Uh, it's just something that he does for himself and his family and friends. Uh, she witnessed with her own eyes, she says in this book, the formation of ectoplasm into a human hand uh, that she could feel. And she shook the hand. She felt the bones in it. It's this incredible story. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what I would do to meet this guy, Stuart Alexander, and have this experience for myself. Because as much as I trusted Leslie, something like that, you just have to see with your own eyes before you can believe it. But he's this incredibly private guy, and I knew I was never going to get to meet him. So I was thankful to at least have Leslie's book and her description of it, and that was going to have to be enough for me. After reading that book, I read it all in one day at a Barnes & Noble. I just happened to palm this book. I put it down on my nightstand. I go to my computer. Earlier that day, I had put out a teaser for the documentary that I was working on about mediumship. I turn on my computer, and there's a message from a friend of mine that says, um, hey, I just watched your trailer. Uh, I want to put you in touch with a friend of mine, Leslie Kane. And I was like, oh, you have got to be kidding me. I had no idea this friend of mine knew Leslie, no idea whatsoever. I had literally just put the book down on my nightstand. Uh, when I get this message, which seemed like an incredible synchronicity. And the, the long story short, Leslie and I met for coffee, became great friends. And less than a year after finding that book randomly at that Barnes and Noble, less than a year, I was sitting in that small room myself with Stuart Alexander. And I was about to watch ectoplasm happen <laughs> with my own eyes. And Again, I hesitated to even put this in the book because the book is fairly sober. You know, it, it kind of sticks to, uh, you know, what, what I could verify. And I worried that people would then get to the final chapter and think, oh, my God, I just spent all this time reading this book. Turns out this guy is just nuts. But 
I, I had to leave it in because it is the absolute truth. I watched something happen that science says is impossible. And because I, I, and I watched it from five inches away, by the way, more than once. I, I watched this happen multiple times. I watched a human hand form out of nothing, out of smoke, like a smoke-like substance. Uh, I watched Leslie shake this hand. She let it go. And then in front of my eyes, it dissolved into nothing, into nothing and disappeared. Um, and Leslie writes about this in her own book as well. And I mean, I pro- all I can do is promise you that I'm telling you the truth. This happened. And because I watched this happen, it, it's this uh, really um, empowering moment in my life because now I know that no matter how smart a scientist is, I'm a guy of average intelligence. And something that always bothered me throughout this whole investigation was why is it, if I am seeing these things happen, why is it that these very intelligent skeptics are telling me this is impossible? You know, what am I missing? They, they have higher IQs than I do. They have more degrees. You know, they have more letters behind their name. They must see something that I don't. What am I missing? But once I had this experience, I now know without a doubt that no matter how many Nobel Prizes might be sitting on a scientist's shelf, If they tell you there is no such thing as anything paranormal, I now know without question they're wrong about that. And it's as simple as that. It's unequivocal. They are wrong about that. I find that an excellent place to ask you, because we're at the end of the show. We could go on for so long. There may be a part two to this. Okay. I look forward. I look forward to your book on remote viewing, which you didn't know you were yeah. going to write. Um, that's a whole other show. Um, where would you like people to find out more about you, your books, and your work? And where sure. would you like Every- them to find the book? Love that. Sure. Uh, everything is at MikeAnthony.com. Um, the, the books are there. Both books are available on Amazon as well. Uh, and there are also some video clips um, if people are interested to see a little bit of what uh, we were working on uh, dirt, making the documentary, you know, some of the uh, experimental setup we were using to test that medium that we were talking about. Uh, there are some clips on the website of that as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Anthony. I knew this was going to be, uh, I know we're talking about death, but this was fun. Um, I, know, it's, yeah. it's a phenomenal conversation. So I had such a great time, really. Thank, thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much. Everybody have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.